Amen. Thank you so much to those guys for leading us in worship. If you have your Bibles, I want you to open those to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, and as you're turning there, I have a confession to make. I have numerous confessions to make this week. Uh, The first is one that you are probably familiar with. I'm a tad bit of a hypochondriac. I don't know if that is what you are at your home. If you are unfamiliar with hypochondria, it is the belief that whenever there is something wrong with you, there is something really, really wrong with you. So the number one enemy of hypochondria is WebMD, but I still choose to use it anyway. There have been numerous times where I have woken up with a pain in my foot and decided within an hour that it was time to amputate. I pointed out to Jared one Sunday morning that it was cold in this room. And he said, you may have circulation problems. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate that. You can preach today. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, I was in a hotel. And I woke up. And there was this round circle on my shoulder. So I did what any good hypochondriac did. I started to Google what round circle on your shoulder, or really anywhere, could mean. And I found some terrible, terrible things that I want nothing to do with. So I took a picture of it and sent it to a friend. I hesitated to send it to Hope because she lets me know quickly how much of a doofus I can be about things like this. But I called her later and explained to her that there was a round circle on my shoulder. And I still uh, I looked again. It was probably 25 minutes later and the circle was gone. I looked in my hotel bed and realized that I had been eating Chex Mix before I went to sleep that night. And I'd fallen asleep on one of the round pretzels. <laughs> to be marked by something that makes you think about something else. When we look into Philippians chapter 2, we're looking at the idea of what it means to be marked. But not, in a, mark that, not a mark that will go away after 15 to 20 minutes of calming down. It's a mark that is supposed to last. The mark that's supposed to linger. It's a mark that's supposed to stay with you. It's a mark that will leave a mark everywhere that you go. For us to be marked. For us to be marked by the person of Jesus. For us to be marked by the message of Jesus. So if you have your Bibles open, that's a good place to be. In Philippians chapter 2, picking up in verse 12. Uh, Therefore, my dear friends, or beloved... Just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more so in my absence. I want you to work out your salvation with with fear and with trembling. For it is God who works in you, who is working in you, to will and to work according to His good purpose. Do everything without grumbling and arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and depraved, perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I'm glad and I rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. One more time, we are marked to leave a mark. And if you're looking at this text and you read it in a way that says that your effort, your exertion is what saves you, then you are reading the text incorrectly. God provides what we present. That's what we see in this text. 
God has provided a salvation for us that is presented in the way that we live, in the way that we care, in the way that we treat one another. We are marked to leave a mark. And you see the marking in this passage. The first thing that we see is in verses 12 and 13 that we are marked as obedient children. Uh, The second thing we see is in 14 and 15 that you are marked as innocent. In 15 and 16 you see that you are marked as light bearers. And finally you see that you are marked by rejoicing. One more time. For those of you who know where you are. We are marked as obedient children in 12 and 13. In 14 and 15 you are marked as innocent. In 15 and 16, you're marked as light bearers. And in 17 and 18, we are marked by rejoicing. Now, we're still looking at what it means in this text, because we're in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. But this is a letter to a church at Philippi who had some stuff they were working through. A church that was very loved by Paul, but they still had issues, because every church everywhere has issues, except this one. We are still looking at what it means, according to Philippians 1.27, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, to be marked by that gospel. Now, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-11, that's to the mountaintop. We have seen that our attitude is to be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We, we see this mountaintop, this place where Paul takes us to. And sometimes when we read through Paul, we say strange things like, you know, I just don't understand Paul. He is over my head. I don't get it. But what couches that passage is what you see in Philippians 2, 1 through 4, that this is really about humility. And and though Paul has taken us to a mountaintop to show us the humility of Christ, we cannot miss the humility that God has called us to because we're people in Christ Jesus. That we're to humble ourselves because Christ has humbled himself. When we say that we don't get something, we're kind of missing something. We're saying that Paul is saying things that are over our heads and it's really more like this. That he's saying something that's over our head that we can attain if we just reach up. But it's going to sting we don't like when things sting. God calls us to humility because humility is something that we struggle with. His application in Philippians 2 is stupid practical. I don't have a better way to express it. That we are called to be humble. Now we're still tied to the earlier part of the text. You've got these two ladies. They are uh, causing strife within the church. They're like Gryffindor and Slytherin. They're fighting with one another. Euodia and Syntyche. I call them... You, you, and Cinti. And when we see this, we see that selfishness is really what's at stake here. That's why we see in verse 4 of the passage, everyone should look not only to his own, in, or rather three, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Paul is dealing with a lack of humility on the parts of at least these two ladies. But, you know, when we really begin to consider, selfishness on the part of someone doesn't stop at that someone. It begins to affect everyone. Selfishness is something that I know a little bit about because I am. It is virtually the same as pride and it's this deep corruption that seeps into us. Pastor John Piper points some of these things out as he writes on the book of Philippians chapter 2. 
And when he writes on this, I felt very much like the person looking at the Spider-Man meme. And you know which one I'm talking about, where two Spider-Men are pointing at one another? Piper would say something, and I was like, wait, he's talking about me, and I don't appreciate that. Keep that at your house, Johnny Pipes. But it says this, like he would point out my selfishness as a reflex to expect to be served. Well, I always want to be served. My selfishness is a reflex to feel that I'm owed, Piper says. Sadly, I I believe that I'm owed more than I should. My selfishness is a reflex that I would want praise. I really like praise. My selfishness is a reflex to expect things that will always go my way. And in my heart of hearts, I expect that things should always go my way. My selfishness is a reflex that I have the right to react negatively when I have been crossed by someone else. Because of this, I believe that I can respond negatively when someone crosses me. Now this selfishness, this pride, as it begins to seep in and it really begins to take root in us, it leads to anger. It leads to self-pity. It leads to the blame game. It leads to exhausted moodiness. Before anyone in the room says amen, I will move on in the text. But I don't think that's just me. I believe that every one of us is always going to fight with the idea of what it means to be fighting with humility because even the most humble of us struggles with pride. Paul points these things out in the text and he's letting us know This is what we're at war with. This is what we're dealing with. But not only is this what we are at war with and what we're dealing with, it's what Christ has defeated and Christ has dealt with. So we are in this really weird in-between of here but not yet, or we're of being in Christ but not yet with Christ, of there but not yet there, where we're dealing with this over and over. And God has called us in this life, in the in-between, to be marked as obedient children. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but even more in my, in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. The tone there is that Paul is saying to the church at Philippi, you are expecting me to come back to you, and I'm glad that you're expecting me to come back to you because you believe if I show up, then you, you, and Cynthia are going to stop fighting, and the church is going to stop having all of its problems. But your walk with the Lord is not just about when I'm with you, it's also about when I'm not with you. It's not just about when I'm sitting in your presence, it's about when I'm not in your presence. So anyone who's ever spent any time with, with teenagers or really adults, you, you've, which is basically everyone, if you've ever dealt with anyone, you've heard phrases like, you can't say that, you're in church. As if the walls of this building really like block us all from saying whatever. You, you've heard... Students at church camp say things. You can't say that. You're at church camp. You can't do that. You're at church camp. It's this really weird thing that takes place in us where we think because we're in a certain place or with a certain person that things should be done in a certain way. And Paul's saying, your faith in Jesus was dealt with by Jesus, not me. You are able to walk with Jesus because of what He has done. Not because I'm standing in your presence. Not only when I'm with you, but also when I'm not with you. When you're not with me, you can still walk with the Lord because this is about the Lord. And it's... For it's God who's working in you. Or rather, it says this, work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. I love that phrase in the text that you would work it out. 
that you would be able to work out your salvation. Now we can read this and we can get really caught up in the weeds of the passage. And we can say, well, you know, is this thing that I work for my salvation? Well, no, it's when we talk about working out. We know that there's something that's there. My doctor told me, you have muscles. I didn't believe her. And she lets me know that the more that I work out, the more obvious it will be that they're there. I got a long way to go. This passage that we would work out our salvation, God is saying to you, God has done something in you. And the more that you press in to who God is and hold on to who God is and trust in what Christ has done for you, the more obvious that will be. How often do we see in our own lives that we're working out our salvation? Leaning in so that it presents outwardly what Christ has done in us. How often do we not do that? Negate the idea of what God has called us to because of a selfishness that leads to anger, which leads to self-pity, which leads to the blame game, which leads to this exhaustion that is moodiness. Where we retreat from the world that we've been called to serve and love. We're marked as obedient children. Mark Twain, we have... Two members of our church with a middle name Twain, but his last name was Twain. He said this. I'm not sure if it was his real last name. It may have been a pseudonym. He says this. Few things are harder to put up with than the annoyance of a good example. Paul has just given to this church, you should follow the example that is the person of Jesus. Sometimes we try to get out of what God has called us to do in our lives and we're trying to be what... Or rather, sometimes we try to get out of what God may, be, may do in our lives because we're trying to see what He should do in someone else's. We see this passage calling this church the idea of, of caring for one another and loving one another just as you have always obeyed, not only with, when I'm with you, but also when I'm not with you, working out your salvation with fear and with trembling because God's at work in you. What a hope that we have that the God of the Bible would be at work in us. That every time in our lives that we would say, I can't deal with my sin, I know I can't deal with my sin, the answer would be, of course you can't deal with your sin. That's what Jesus came. Jesus came to deal with sin. Jesus put sin to death. Jesus dealt with it wholly and completely. Jesus did what you cannot do, and because of who He is, you can walk in a certain way. You can see that the, the hope of the kingdom forcefully advancing... It's, it's very much like this. I can't sing. I've never been able to sing. For whatever reason, I would always be put in church choir when I was a kid. And they would be kind to me and pat me on the back and tell me that I could sing because our church was full of liars and deceitful people. And I don't appreciate them in retrospect. But they were just kind little ladies. They would tell me that I could sing. I guess comparatively I could to their husbands or their dogs. But they would put me in front of people. Imagine that I were to sing a solo. I've asked Jared multiple times to let me sing in here. He always says no. But imagine that I let Jared stand in my place to sing the solo that I've chosen. One with notes that I can't reach. One with places that I can't go. But he stands in my place because Jared can do all of those things. This passage says it's God who's working in you to will and to act according to His good purpose. Both of those are verbs saying that God is willing, God is acting, God is doing. God's affecting your mind and God's calling you to see that He, he desires to impact your actions. That God would call us as a people who do not just see this in the, in the broader general sense, but that we would see the places where He's called us to creep into this world for the sake of the good news of Jesus. Hearing people who need to be heard, loving those who need to be loved, caring when people need to be cared for. 
even though everything inside of us reflexively says, I don't want to do that because I'm selfish. I don't have the time. I, I don't have the energy. I don't, I'm exhausted. God is at work in you to will and to act according to His good purpose. And if we as believers can really wrap our minds around anything in this text, it's the God of the Bible who made Himself known in the flesh who presented himself to us as Jesus Christ, Jesus God the Son in our place, that we would see that we've been called to demonstrate and display him in this world, that we would see Jesus lived out by people who claim his name, that we would not simply put up this artificial front of a faith that has nothing to do with the cross of Christ and his kingdom. The passage says this, it continues in verse 14, since we're marked as God's people. It says, you're to do everything without grumbling and complaining. Or grumbling and arguing. The word for grumble there is to murmur under your breath. So this is not a talk that is allowed so that everyone can hear. This is a talk so that someone may overhear. That's what you, you, and Cinti were evidently doing to affect this church. One would have a problem with the other. Grumble, grumble, grumble. One would respond with a grumble, grumble, grumble. This grumbling begins to not just affect them, it affects everyone around them. I remember going to a church camp with my best friend when we were in high school. We got into an argument over what people get into arguments over at church camp. Really important stuff like what we were having for lunch. Our youth pastor stepped between us and he separated the two of us as we're having a fight in the ocean like two orca whales. And he said, you two are to leave this here because it does not just affect you, it affects everyone around you. To grumble, grumble, grumble is something that really does present itself in the church as problematic. It presents itself almost in innocent ways when you grumble to someone in hopes that that someone will tell someone else who will eventually get back to the pastor or the elders and let them know that the grumbling has taken place. And it gets to those people with something like this. Hey, I got a phone call from somebody and they told me that they don't like this. Well, who's somebody? Well, I'm really not allowed to say. Well, somebody has to be nobody or I'm going to go insane. We don't get to deal with that. Grumbling and disputing in that way. Murmuring, murmuring, and murmuring. Or maybe your grumbling is, well, somebody needs to do that. And we forget that we're also somebody. Well, so somebody should pick up that garbage in the hallway. Well, you're somebody. Pick it up. Well, well somebody should really care for the needs of those people. Well, you're somebody. Do you need some help? Call somebody else. You know somebody. They're probably somebody who murmured to you a few weeks ago. Encourage them to pair themselves with the truth of who Jesus is. Crucifying our sins for the sake of the hope of the world to be presented in Jesus. So that you may be blameless and pure. Now, if we're not careful, we can read a passage like Philippians 2 verse 15. And we can read, oh, this says that if I act a certain way, that I will be blameless and pure. It's not necessarily about that. Now, there are places where Paul deals with what our purity looks like and where that purity comes from. He deals with it in numerous other epistles where he's dealing with people who may or may not be Christians. But for the most part, when Paul writes to the church at Philippi, there's this loving tone. That's why he draws beloved on them and he doesn't tell them to go uh, wound themselves, which he does in other books. 
I love you, church, he says, but when I look at you, you are not presenting yourself as blameless and pure. You are not displaying what Christ has done because you've chosen to display your own selfishness, your own anger, your own rage, your own blame game. You've chosen to display your own moodiness. You've chosen to show something that is not what the people of God are called to. Do everything without grumbling or complaining or, or arguing so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless. In a crooked and perverted, perverted generation that we, as those who follow after Jesus, would put the hope of Jesus on display so that our lives could not be questioned in a way that would say, well, they are hypocritical. They are contradictory. Paul's dealing with this church that's been established in Philippi and the church at Philippi, the area rather, of Philippi, they loved Octavian. Because Octavian, the Caesar, had marched into their area and when he took over, rather than executing everyone who disagreed with him, he allowed these enemies of his to now be his in relationship. Now they were this area called Philippi. It was given over to people who had, um, who had fought in a war against him. So they were very loyal to him. But Paul is saying in this passage that our loyalty is to someone else. That our loyalty is to somewhere else. He calls it a crooked and perverted generation. What a unique phrase. Crooked and perverted. I read through that and my mind goes numerous places. What could Paul ever be dealing with when he says the world is crooked and perverted? That we live in a broken world. Absolutely. But we love to begin to talk about crooked and deprivation. And we, and we have reason to. Uh, we look at pornography and we, we believe that it is crooked and depraved. We see murder, it is crooked and depraved. Sexual sin, outside of what the scripture teaches, is crooked and depraved. We, we believe these things and we begin to lay those things on, on whatever takes place outside of the church. But it doesn't seem to me that Paul is dealing necessarily with just that. Of course these obvious sins are there. Of course we should consider this problem. But Paul is setting up in this passage a point and a counterpoint. So when he looked at this area, this city-state of Philippi, he noticed that there was grumbling and complaining. And then he looked at the church, and he noticed within the church there's grumbling and complaining. We begin to think about sin in this far-off, monstrous way. And it should be thought of in that way. But we cannot miss the very thing that Paul seems to be dealing with here in the church at Philippi is something that is altogether common for believers that gather together in places like this every Sunday. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Complain, complain, complain. Argue, argue, argue. Fight, fight, fight. I'm on you, you side. I'm with Cindy. Grumbling, complaining, whispering, murmuring, somebodying. Paul's dealing with this altogether real sin that you seem to, that I seem to overlook in my own life. 
But he's calling the people of God to be more. To deal with things differently. To have conversations where we are leaning into one another for the sake of the good gospel that is Jesus's. He's calling for people to circle up around this truth and to let that truth permeate and saturate every aspect of their very being. Not so that we would just address the sin that is out there, but that we would see and we would know that if we are not careful, we are going to give way to the sin that is in here. And that's not to say that none of those things are present in you. But on a practical level, when he deals with the church at Philippi, he's saying, in your world, you see grumbling and complaining, the people of God should not be so. So when you hear a whisper, you think somebody should. Wrestle with the practical reality that God's called his people to something different. Well, what's he called us to, Chad? What's he called me to? What's he asking of me? And 15 and 16 show us that we're marked as light bearers. Read with me. So that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and depraved generation, your presentation, your projection, among whom you shine like stars in the world. Stars we're fascinated by celebrities. We're fascinated by people who are well-known. We even have people who are insta-famous. That's like not really famous. It's just internet famous. Influencers in the wild. If you don't follow that account, brace yourself. But there are some crazy people. We are caught up in the idea of what a star is because it seems to shine. It's why we can say who our favorite actor is, who our favorite athlete is. It's why we try to mimic and, and model ourselves after them. It's, it's why we try to catch up with fashion. The idea of the star here that Paul's talking about is not that. He's talking about what's here in the sky. Because for them, it was very unlike the bubbling metropolis that is Lake Jackson that's so well lit each and every night. Where we have city lights and street lights. When, it, when we had the ice storm of 2021 a few weeks ago, you, you may have experienced a power outage. We experienced one. I went walking one night, had a headlamp on, had my phone in front of me so I could see where I was going. But you could see the sky differently. The stars looked different. But they shined because there was nothing else to take away from the shine. Paul uses that word in this world where they don't have street lights and they follow after torches and lanterns to talk about the real stars that are in the sky. And he says this about the believing people who belong to Jesus in this world. This church, this little church in Philippi that is to be a counterpoint to the point that the world is making. He is saying, you shine like stars in the world. 
Watchman Nee was a Bible teacher and he was a church planter in China. After the Communist Revolution, he was arrested. He spent the last 20 years of his life in a Chinese prison. And he said this, To secure one's freedom, the Christian must experience God's light, which is God's truth. This passage that talks about us shining as lights in the world can make us really begin to think about what the Bible says about stars and about light. In John chapter 8, you see Jesus saying this. He said, I'm the light of the world. In John chapter, in Matthew chapter 5, however, Jesus says this to those who were in relationship with him. You are the light of the world. In Ephesians 5, Paul's going to say at one point, at, at one time you were darkness, but now you are the light of the world. So where does this light come from? Where does this light present itself? One of my favorite illustrations I shared in May of 2017 when I was first here. Oh, there are these stars that you can put in your kid's room. You buy them at Walmart. You probably have seen them. They look a little bit like this. Anybody know those, recognize those, have those? You give them to little children if you, because kids really have a couple of options at night. Option one is they wake up and they just bother you because they're afraid of the dark. You can get them a nightlight, but the problem with nightlights is when kids wake up, they think, oh, it's party time. Let's roll. You can buy these stars, though. You can put them on the ceiling of your kid's room. I have to be careful not to say roof because that wouldn't help anybody. But when they're on the ceiling, when the kid goes to bed, they see this light shining, these stars shining. But the light that's in those, it doesn't come from within those. It comes from outside. All day long, while the lights are on in that kid's room, and you can't see those stars shining, what they do is they absorb. They absorb a light that is not theirs. And as they absorb the light that is not theirs, they eventually, in the darkness, they will emit that light. Display that light. But here's the trick of how they help your child sleep. The longer they are away from the source of light that they have absorbed, the more dim they become. Now this passage that Paul writes to us says you will shine like stars in the world. But the breakup of the verse, according to whoever broke up these verses, doesn't help us to see exactly how. It says in verse 15, and you will shine like stars in the world. It continues in 16 by saying, by holding firm to the word of life. What is the word of life? Well, in the general sense, we believe that it's to be the Bible. Yes, we would hold firm to the word of life. But Paul has a particular word of life that helps us to understand the rest of the word of life. The word of life that Paul is referencing here is this gospel of Jesus, Christ crucified and resurrected. The humility of Christ... Moving to be with us, condescending, so that we could eventually be in relationship with God forever. So for you and for me, if we're going to shine like lights in the world, we are to cling firmly to that truth, to that hope, to never lose sight of it. That Christ, crucified, resurrected, is the hope of the world. And as we read the Bible, we understand what God is teaching us from His Word through that lens. The Word of life is the gospel of Jesus presented to us. The word of life. Paul is pointing out to us as followers of Jesus 
the importance of not losing sight of what this good news is. What this gospel is. And if I'm not careful in the depths of my selfishness, in the expression of my depravity that we accept as everyday all too common but okay, I can forget the word of life that this passage talks about. All of us can. That's why, as followers of Jesus, it is important for us to live in, not in isolation, but in a community of faith. We've heard the idea that it's just me and Jesus. I'm going to go, you know, read my Bible in a field, but I'm going to read it on my phone if I don't get distracted by my TikTok. Cling to the word of life. Paul's not addressing simply personal situations. He's addressing all of us gathering together around this truth of the message that is Jesus's. Not losing sight of it. Understanding that all Scripture points to it. The idea that we would confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised Him from the dead. That's the word of life. Jesus dying in my place so that I could live with him that's the word of life are we wrapping ourselves in this message are we saturated in it because if we're not saturating ourselves in it we'll be saturating ourselves in something else you don't get to just wait I find myself going to these unhealthy places the passage continues and it says this that then I can boast in the day of Christ that I did not run and I did not labor for nothing he, he's using endurance terminology. Endurance, what a world, what a word that we would endure. That I would keep going and I would keep going and I would keep going. That I would eventually see that there's value there. I don't want to lose sight of the value that's there. I want to see the payoff here. Paul's saying, I don't want to run and end up empty handed. And I think any pastor worth his salt and any Bible teacher worth his or her salt or anyone who sits down with a small group or a discipleship group or a life group worth any of their salt, they want to believe that what they are investing in that, that it matters. So when we push you to go to a life group or we encourage you to be part of a discipleship group or we ask these things, it's not for our like our physical health. I don't like hearing myself say the same things over and over. No one does. It's because we believe that for the good of the gospel of Jesus as a body of believers that we have come together around these truths because we believe that these truths matter more than anything else that we're pushing us as a family toward that. That we will make sacrifice after sacrifice. Why do you keep asking me to make sacrifices? Because you've never walked away from the point where the sacrifice of Jesus did not matter. It always matters. And it shapes us. So I'm going to work harder on fighting my own sin. God called me to that. He called every one of us to that. So I did not run or labor for nothing. Paul closes talking about, we're marked by rejoicing, that we will be a rejoicing people. Joy over and over and over and over and then over again. He says this, but even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering 
on the sacrificial service of your faith. I am glad and I rejoice with all of you. The drink offering was something they were very familiar with because you would offer up drink offerings to various deities and it, it was something, and it, you would offer up uh, drink offerings to what you believe. And when you would do that, you would not simply pour it out a little bit like when I share a drink with the children. I don't like to do that. But every now and then I'll share a drink with my kids. I'll give them a sip. But I tell them to take a small sip. That's not what he's saying here when he says he's pouring himself out. Paul's saying, I poured myself out like a big gulp. Like the, 80, like the 79 cent drink at Bucky's. Just dumped it out. Pouring myself out completely. Paul says, even if I do everything that I do and act every way that I can act, and I've poured everything out as a sacrificial service of my faith, which is responding, responding rather to the message of the sacrifice of Jesus, even if I pour myself out completely, I will rejoice. I will rejoice because I have lined my life up with this Savior. I have lined myself up with his crucifixion and his resurrection. I have lined my life up so that I can confess with my mouth that he is Lord and believe in my heart that God has raised him from the dead. I have poured myself out so that can be seen. But he doesn't end there because in verse 18 he says this, To the church at Philippi, and I say this to the church at Grace Bible, 1027 Dixie Drive. If you don't know the address, feel free to send cards and letters. He says, so you too... You be glad and you rejoice with me. He invites the church to put aside their disagreements, their disgruntledness, their murmuring, their complaining, their bickering in between, and says, just pour yourself out. Every ounce of you for the sake of the message of Jesus. So if we're going to look at our lives, and really you're the only person who knows your life, the only person who knows your life better than you is Jesus. Do you find that you're pouring yourselves out for the sake of the gospel? Clinging to Him as the light of the world. Presenting Him as the hope of the world. Are we displaying a counterpoint to the point that the world is making? If not, we need to evaluate and reevaluate and evaluate again. Pour yourself out completely. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? I'm going to pray for us in a moment, and I invite you to spend time in prayer where you are. As I've said before, you can move to another place in the room if you need if need be. If you would like for me to pray alongside of you, I'll do that. I have a mask if you want me to put on a mask. I'll do whatever you need me to do. But will we let this text sit on us? And deal with our little things that can become massive problems if we're not careful. So, Father, we do um, we pray 
I pray that you will convict me of my sin and help me to fight the natural tendency to grumble and complain and be frustrated. Help me to put that to death. I pray that over our people as it presents in various ways. God, if it's even happening, I pray that you would help us to put that to the side and put you to the forefront. I pray that your your gospel will be preached and presented, yes, but God, it will be presented by these lives going into the places that you call them to each day and that they would shine as lights in the world, a counterpoint to the point that the world around us is making. We ask this in your powerful name, Jesus.